Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show. It is Friday, May 27th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. On this episode, we will have another installment of Overreaction Theater. We'll discuss the White Sox run scoring issues and the Giants run prevention issues and whether or not those are early season anomalies or issues that need to be addressed by those clubs over the course of the season. We'll check in on some rookie position players. Got a few stars in the making, turning things around after sluggish starts. Got a few less discussed players that are actually holding their own early on in their rookie campaign. So we'll dig into those players and we're going to take a trip back to 2012. Keith redrafted the 2012 draft class this week on the athletics. We'll talk about some of the big hits and misses from that. People draft class. got so mad. How could you do that wrong with the answer key? It, it, it's a fake redraft. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I don't, I will never understand the internet and I've been on the internet for like 30 years. If you count when I had a pro- Linux prompt access back in college, yeah, like 32 years on the internet. Isn't that horrible? Are you sure you want to stay on the internet after 32 years? No, no. Stop the internet. I want to get off. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, it reminds me of the episode of Seinfeld when Kramer wants to stop his mail. <laughs> I just want to stop the internet. I don't right. need it. I don't need to be a part of the internet anymore. I'm exiting the internet. I will continue to exist outside of the internet and I'm happy to talk to people and do things outside of the internet. Sure. But I am opting out of the internet for the rest of my life. That would, if I could choose that, if I could choose that today. Sounds great. Hit this button, hit that button. I I would hit the button to opt out of the internet if I could. Yep. Yep. Just shut the whole thing off. (laughs) What was the old internet? The, the prank where it was, February 29th is internet cleanup day. You had to unplug all your devices from the internet back when devices were plugged in, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need a day to clean it off. How many times have you been Rick rolled in 32 years? That's a good question. Is it double digits? No, I don't think so. I don't click on like I'm because I'm suspicious slash cynical. Usually don't click on stuff. Although I will say when I was in, I did, I taught Last fall, I was an adjunct at uh, Lincoln University, which is an HBCU that's pretty close to my house here. And it was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. And I actually fell for the, the they did like a phishing test, like their IT department was basically like, will you be dumb enough to click on one of these links? And being completely new to the system, like I didn't know what a real thing would look like. And I was like, this looks like extremely important thing from some department. So nothing happened. Obviously I was totally expecting to get some phone call like you moron, (laughs) which I deserved for the record. Right. Like I actually was a moron because I clicked on the link. However, um, nobody called. Well, Hey, you made it through. You you learned from it. That's the important thing. You learned from the experience. This is true. 
Yes. Well, for now, we stay on the internet and we dig into some issues. The run scoring issues of the White Sox, as I mentioned up top, they have a minus 33 run differential entering play on Thursday. I think you probably put them right up there with the Blue Jays in terms of uh, most surprising sluggish offenses for the first two months or so of the season. It's important to note, right? Eloy Jimenez has missed a lot of time. Yoel Mankata only recently returned from the IL. AJ Pollock spent some time on the IL, but while Pollock has played, he's been very much below average, a 78 WRC plus so far this season. Um, Yasmani yeah. Grandal hasn't hit, which is kind of surprising because when he's healthy, even with his flaws, I think he's a good offensive player and they're glue guys. Jake Berger, Gavin Sheets, Adam Engel, uh, Josh Harrison plays a lot. Larry Garcia plays a lot. They've all been below average so far, too. A lot has fallen on the shoulders of Tim Anderson and Jose Abreu and kind of the, the top of that offense. Abreu hasn't been that good. Yeah, he, he right? hasn't been himself. He hasn't been... He's been 2022 bad, which is not necessarily bad, right? <laughs> it's got to be put into the proper context of what is the rest of the league doing. Last year, he had a 126 WRC+. plus. This year, he's got a 113 the difference is it's a 229, 320, 392 line. Every time I look at a slash line this year and I look at the WRC plus, it doesn't make sense. It breaks my brain every single yeah. time. And I think Abreu is a good example of that right now. Yeah. How is that an above average bet? It's probably not above. I have to look up the league split. It's probably not above average for a first baseman. But by OPS plus, I don't love that stat, but I happen to have, I just have it in front of me. It's good enough for this purpose. He's the third best hitter on the team. Luis Robert with his 319 on base percentage is the second best, a 120 OPS plus. He is comfortably above league average, which is also kind of hard to fathom. It's kind of gross. It, it really is kind of yeah. gross at this point. Yeah. This is not the baseball I signed up for. No, it's not. Andrew Vaughn, we talked about him a few weeks ago. He's overall still good this year. Missed some time on the IL since we last spoke about him too. So he's been part yeah. of how they've sort of held it together on that side. But you know, lo- Is he ever going to be good enough to not hit ninth? Somebody, somebody wake, make sure Tony's awake next time he has to write out. The yeah. Is there a future without Tony Larusa calling the shots within this season? I don't, I don't think they're making a change there. I doubt. What's well, the owner? The owner picked his buddy. It's not going to change his mind. No. Tony's going to leave that job under his own terms. I'm completely convinced. And that is not good. I am not endorsing this. <laughs> certainly. This is ownership. I mean, this is just not how you run a team. I, you know, I think a lot of these, especially longtime owners, think it's my team. I can do whatever the hell I want with it. Technically true. Yes, you can do whatever the hell you want with it. I agree with that. However, it's probably not the best way to run a club. You hire a bunch of smart people. Rakan's a really smart guy to run your baseball ops department. Maybe you should let them make the decisions. And one of the leading ones was, you know, don't pick your friend who is 90 years old and it really has shown himself through his actions since the last time he was, was in a dugout to be increasingly out of touch with the way that the game today is managed and played. Um, you don't hire that guy to be your manager. Not if you want to win. Yeah. And I'm 37 and I don't want to be on the internet anymore. I mean, if I were in my nineties, I don't want to have a job in my nineties. doesn't no. matter if it's a good job. I want to be on a beach somewhere, just relaxing, you know, doing, sure. Doing retired person stuff. I don't know what that even is, but it sounds better than being on the internet and yes. being in the dugout at that age. The pitching's actually been pretty good so far. They've had a few injuries on that side as well. I think the question for Rick Hahn in the front office is, will, will the regression kick in and will this offense deliver as expected? Or do you have true flaws that you're going to have to address via trade? Do you see true trouble spots that as you move through the summer, 
need to be upgraded once we get to the deadline about two months from now? I don't think so. It, it, you know, it's really going to come down to how healthy are they. Right? I think when they get to the July 1st, July 4th, whatever, some find some checkpoint there. How healthy does the team look? Because I do think a couple of these guys, you know, I think Grandal is going to be better. I think Luis Robert, when he comes back, should probably be better. But some of these other, you called them the glue guys, right? Berger, Engel, Sheets. Are those guys still wildly underperforming? Uh, Lurie Garcia has been a complete cipher. You know, does some of those guys get just up closer to expectations? Then maybe, maybe they're just looking for small additions. I don't think this is a situation where they need to go out and they're going to have to go out and get some major addition unless it turns out like, oh, Robert's not coming back the rest of the season. Right. Big injuries like that, of course, would, would shake some things up. I think second base is the spot I've looked at for a long time and thought they could really use an upgrade there if they can find one. But a lot of times the players you can get to fill out that spot aren't really better than what you have. It's just a, a strange position to need, even though it's not necessarily a difficult position to fill. So yeah, all in all, it's going to come back to just getting the core back. I think we talked about Mankata a few weeks ago, getting him anywhere close to his 2019 levels would be huge for this offense and keeping the core healthy would go a long way. And I'm with you. His money Grandal is going to bounce back. He's going to hit. He's not a player you have to worry about. It's really that, that depth you have to worry about if the injuries start to pile up on this team again. Let's get to the Giants, the run prevention issues they're having, 4.7 runs per game allowed. It's not just the 13-12 slugfest they had with the Mets earlier this week, which was an exciting game, a very exciting game. Uh, they've had a few things go wrong in the rotation. Alex Cobb, I think it's mostly bad luck, Keith. He's got a 49.1% left on base percentage, which is just remarkably weird and bad, Like unless... Unless you had a major problem tipping pitches with runners on base, there's no mm -hmm. viable explanation for that other than literal bad luck. So if you get Cobb even close to where his FIP is, which I know FIP's not perfect, but it's about three runs lower than his current ERA. If you get him anywhere close to that, you get two runs back the rest of the way. That helps stabilize things. Alex Wood's been a little bit unlucky so far, too. They've had Anthony Scafani on the I.L., and then Jake McGee hasn't been anywhere close to as effective as he was, especially in the first half of last year. So maybe an upgrade or two in the bullpen would go a long way toward helping some of the run prevention issues the Giants are having. But I don't think it's panic time, even with the core they've got in place in that rotation. Yeah, I'm just pulling up. Yeah, wow. Alex Cobb, nobody on, 343 slug. Men on base, 539 slug. That's usually not a thing. That's fine. God, his stats are weird. I mean, this is what happens when you slice things too thinly, right? You get all kinds of weirdness in split. I mean, talking about splits of like, he's had 41 plate appearances where there were runners in scoring position. And by the way, he's getting smoked in those situations too. Is that real? Is there actually something wrong there? I mean, sometimes it, it is a thing, right? Where a pitcher is having a particular issue that he's only having from the stretch. He's not having from the windup. I don't know anything about Cobb in this situation to say that that is or isn't true. So the first thing I would look at if I were with the Giants is he actually doing something different mechanically where either he is not locating as effectively or perhaps he is um, tipping in some way that he is he's only doing it out of the stretch. Like that's not unheard of. So I, I am not especially concerned just yet because it is a tiny sample. 
but I don't think that there's, uh, but I do would say that there are, if you're with the Giants, like I just haven't watched, I'm out watching amateurs. I haven't watched Alex Cobb footage, but I would look to see if there is something potentially there um, that could be altered that needed to be addressed. The things I like in terms of underlying numbers, velo up across the board for Cobb so far. 94.6 miles per hour on the fastball, the average velo. That is a career best. It's almost two full ticks above where he was a season ago with the Angels. And he's throwing the thing, the changeup, throwing it more than ever, 41.6% of the time. So I like what they're trying to do with him. And I think there's pretty clear bounce back potential there. You know, Alex Wood, I think it's just more of an injury question than an than an actual skills question. As long as he's healthy, he's the kind of guy that comes through, usually gets you a mid threes ERA, doesn't give you up, doesn't give a ton of traffic, doesn't really have major home run issues most years as long as he's healthy. I think the the two years where he struggled the most with the long ball, 2019 in Cincinnati, the pandemic shortened 2020 season with the Dodgers, he wasn't healthy through a combined 48 innings in those two seasons. In the yeah. park he's in right now with the stuff he has, he's probably going to be fine. He is constantly hurt, right? I mean, that's he's had a nice career actually for a guy with a pretty rough delivery. The thing that concerns me is like, and one of the things I've always not loved about what I thought Wood was just going to end up in the bullpen. Um, going back to you know, he had Tommy John as an amateur. It is a really rough delivery. I mean, right-handed batters are destroying him this year, and because of the arm slot and where he's coming from, like he's extreme, like lefties just do not have much of an opportunity to see the ball, but he gives right-handers a really good look. And you know, he's in, generally in his career, he's had a pretty good changeup that's been able to help him neutralize some of that disadvantage. It's not working for him so far this year. Is this a small sample or is this something else we need to be keeping an eye on? Like, I think either one of those could be true. Again, it is another one of those, hey, if you're with the Giants, you're looking, trying to look at a very granular level. Is there something very different, you know, in pitch characteristic data around the changeup, or is it usage, or is it location, or do you think this is just bad luck? This could easily be just bad luck. Yeah, the swing strike rate is way down for Alex Wood, 9.7% to this point in the season. Last year, he was at 12.5%. I think going all the way back to 2017, he's been over 10% pretty consistently, so a slight drop mm -hmm. there, a little change in the use of the changeup. Um, of the two, Cobb versus Wood, by the way, I, I'm more confident in Cobb's rebound because I think the stuff is just better. There's more velo. That mm -hmm. changeup is one of the nastiest pitches around when he has it working. Um, so I think if you're a Giants fan looking at the situation, even though Cobb's numbers look worse right now, I would not be surprised if Cobb has better results in the end. As far as Jake McGee goes, I think it was a, a fun story while it lasted, Keith, but I think he was among the players whose performance really started to turn in the second half of last season. We're also talking about a guy who's 35 years old. Yeah, God, I was just going to say, he's been around forever. It's just, right? it's entirely possible. He's just lost enough stuff where the velo's down about a tick from where it was last year. And it's just, he's just not going to get back to that level that we saw a season ago, especially in the first half. I don't feel like they were banking. Well, I mean, it would be nice to have him better. Obviously, I want to underrate this. I don't know that they were banking on him. There's a bunch of guys in that bullpen. Like Tyler Rogers should certainly be better than what we've seen from him. Uh, some of the results from a couple there. Actually, Britt Doval's been, you know, I mean, obviously he's taken over in the capital C closer role and he's been pretty good. But I see, I look at this bullpen and think there's a couple other guys here who could be better than what we've seen from them a little bit. Also, is that Luis Gonzalez has now three relief appearances for them? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. 
that is kind of ridiculous and hilarious. Prospect who I actually probably liked a little bit too much when he was in the low market. He had a ton. He was very toolsy. He just kind of never. Um, I don't know if it was that we kind of overrated him because he played at significant altitude at, when he was at the University of New Mexico. I thought he would be a better hitter for probably more like doubles power, but he was pretty athletic. Looked like he'd be able to stay in center. You know, this also could be another one of those giants. Say giants take a guy with some of those tools, some ability, and they just find a way to, they make little changes to him. They deploy him properly. And they've been doing this a lot in the last few years. I mean, hell, they made something out of Darren Ruff. I didn't think that guy was ever going to have big league value. Yeah. I mean, you look at the time he spent in the White Sox system and some of the adjustments that have already been made since he's landed in San Francisco. I think you might be right later than you expected with Luis Gonzalez. There's actually quite a bit here to be excited about. I mean, mm-hmm. from a fantasy perspective, he runs a little bit too. Stolen bases are, are gold right yes. now, but there's a clear opportunity for Gonzalez to play kind of a lot. And even if it's only a, a big side platoon role or something in right. that range, that that could actually work. That could actually be some pretty nice found value for them that people weren't really expecting more than you know an up and down sort of guy sort of season from. Yeah, I think that's probably what he is. And he also has not a lot of opportunities to play against lefties so far this year. But if, if I were betting, I would say that. Strong side, platoon, defensive value, can run, move into all three outfield spots. Useful player. It's great. That's a great outcome for a guy I think they basically got for nothing. Yeah. Would love to see a few more barrels, though, so far. 68 batted ball events, one barrel. Well, that's the, this was the thing. I saw him in the low minors. He was a little old for the level, too. But even then... You could see it's like he should be hitting the ball harder for a for an outfielder at that age. It just it was even visible, right? I would see him get hits, but they weren't hard hit balls. It's okay, maybe there's something to be concerned about there. But you know, you also think, well, a guy can get stronger. Some guys come into their strength a little bit later. I want to give up on him when there's hey, here's four other things I like about this particular player. But yeah, it just maybe that's it. Maybe that's what he is. He is a you know, it's not going to be a lot of hard hit balls. However. It will be um, it will be uh, lots of other, th- you know, if you don't hit the ball particularly hard, but you can play some defense and you can run and you show a little plate discipline, you can still find a way to a big league role. Let's talk about a few other rookies since Gonzalez, I think, does technically qualify as a rookie, not the type of rookie we're ordinarily talking about. Um, mm-hmm. But Stephen Kwan kind of makes some sense here, kind of took the league by storm for the first week, first couple of weeks of the season. How are things going right now for Stephen Kwan? Well, one concern that we outlined on this show and on Rates and Barrels, and I think pretty much anywhere where we were talking about Stephen Kwan back in April, was that we didn't know how much power there was going to be. He's got mm-hmm. 104 batted ball events. He's got three barrels. That's a 2.9% barrel rate. He's got a 26% hard hit rate. So it's not like he's yep. hitting the ball hard and hitting it on the ground. He's just not hitting the ball hard. I know part of this is, is skewed by his ability to make a lot of contact. The mm-hmm. cost of making a lot of contact, right? You're you're blowing up the denominator. You're putting a lot of balls in play. You're going to put a lot of low-velocity balls in play. So that's going to make some of these numbers look a little worse than they actually are. Like, you'd be better off if you're Stephen Kwan not hitting some of these balls weekly because then these metrics would look better. That being said, I think we're getting to the point now where with more confidence, we can say, yes, this is not a guy that's going to come in and, and pop 20 home runs. Like, that's just not who he is as a hitter. I think I agree. See, this is somebody who was fairly high on Quan coming into the season. But this is actually more in line with what I expected. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of power. 
And yes, you're correct about him blowing up the denominator, but you also look at, I mean, this is an imperfect measure, but just quick isolated power. It's under 100, right? So that is going to scale. It is what percentage of the hits he's making are uh, the contact he's making of the hits that he has. What percentage of these are actually hard enough for him to, for them to go for extra bases? Well, turns out by any particular measure here, not that many. He's a doubles guy. That's probably what it's going to be. I think over time, the batting average will creep up, and he is going to be very batting average heavy. It's not going to be his on-base percentage is, is good. But I mean, in terms of is it going to be extra base heavy or is it going to be contact heavy? It's contact heavy. That's who he's going to be. He can put the ball in play a ton. We've got quite a bit of data now to show that, yeah, that skill seems to be pretty real. I would not be surprised if the batting average crept up, and he ended up a guy who hits you know, 280, 290 on a regular basis but probably without a lot of slug and certainly without a ton of home runs. You know, is he a, he's got one so far in 33 games. Could he be a 10 homer a year guy? Yeah, I don't think I'd push much farther than that. Though. And that's a, still a useful big leaguer. Yeah, useful big leaguer and a good defender too on top of that, right? So mm-hmm. gets on base, sets the table for your better hitters, plays good defense. Good teams have players like this. It works. It's just not quite the exciting high ceiling players some people were hoping for back when the season started well we just right it was overreaction right and i honestly didn't say a lot a lot of people were like hey you were readers like you were right on stephen kwan i'm just not gonna say anything right now we'll just wait let's see don't want to take that victory lap on april 20th no and and it's not even i don't think it's taking a victory lap on may 27th to sit back and say okay this is this is more in line with our expectations because i just think it's it's a fair assessment of, of who he's been as a player to this point and what many people expect him to be mm-hmm. as a player. I think going back to April, we talked about Julio Rodriguez and, and Bobby Witt Jr. And, and this this group of highly touted prospects getting chances from the jump this season. They went through an adjustment phase in the early weeks, and things have looked a lot better throughout May for both of these guys. I mean, Rodriguez, mm-hmm. he's turning into must-see TV. If you stay up late and watch West Coast mm-hmm. games, there's something exciting he's going to do pretty much every time he steps out onto the field, which is is great. Like I, I want to see more players like this, and I think the interesting thing here, K-rate is actually pretty manageable for a guy this young. We're talking about a 21-year-old rookie with about a 30% K-rate. He's now popped five homers. He's 13 for 16 as a this base is, dealer. This can we wild. talk about how fast this guy is? He's flying right now. I saw him... Would it have been 19? Might be the first time, certainly the first time I saw him, August of 2019. Yeah, it's definitely true because I was still dating my wife. And I have, it's funny, I remember telling her, I just saw so and so, he's pretty exciting, etc. I would guarantee you, I have nothing in my notes from that game that indicates that he's anything more than an average runner. And honestly, I looked at him, it's like, that guy's going to be huge. There is no way. I mean, he is, I'll, I'll take the L on this. He's like an ED runner. This is bonkers. It's strange because it's the type of growth that I feel like I never expect from a player. As You can get bigger and stronger, and, and you think of that just being bulk that leads you to hit more home runs, more doubles, more home runs. But if you just get stronger and in, in a good way, like you're stronger mm-hmm. with your legs too, you're more balanced, you could get faster if you're this young. And that's mm-hmm. been the case for Rodriguez. Is he, is he more like Acuna? in terms of his skills than people realized, where it, it's a little bit of everything across the board. I mean, he might even be a better runner than Acuna in terms of just yeah. raw speed, but is that more in line with the profile that we have with Rodriguez? That's a pretty interesting comp. Yeah, I feel okay about that. Like about it, Could that be the profile? Could that be the 
upside. Yeah, actually. That's a guy that can win MVPs and a guy that goes 1-1 in fantasy drafts, which is awesome. Those are fun. Those are fun players. Those are extremely fun players. It's just so I'm you know, I know I I don't want to harp on this point too. Like if he doesn't get bigger, I still look at him like that is a frame that is built to hold a lot of mass, right? In a different sport, especially, we are looking for him to bulk up and he's going to be right. He's probably a little short for football, maybe, but he looks like he could weigh 260. Mm-hmm. He is not, you know, if he manages that and can keep that, keep this unbelievable speed, then yeah, then we're talking about like, Strong, I think he's a strong OBP guy in time. I understand he's not there right now. With power and plus defense and center and steals a lot of bases. Yeah, that's an MVP. That's a guy who's potentially, you know, in the argument for best player in the American League, not an Angels edition. Right, not Angels edition. It's fair. And I think with with large frame players that, that run well longer than you'd expect them to. I mean, Mike Trout. I think is a, has been a better runner yeah. for longer than I would have expected looking at his body because he has more of that that linebacker sort of build that I think oh, yeah. you are describing as something that Rodriguez could grow into. So you don't necessarily lose all that speed as you get bigger, but it's more likely that you lose it than not. Yeah, it is interesting too that, you know, J-Rod had a, a rough April. Nobody was worried, but not only is he performing way better in May, but he did cut the strikeout rate also. The thing you were just mentioning too, where it was 30 punch in 81 plate appearances in April. He's actually up to 97 plate appearances in May so far. A month isn't over. Uh, it's 16 more plate appearances, five fewer strikeouts. So he is, again, not that I'm surprised. You think a guy like that, and I assume some of the other guys we're going to talk, be talking about, right? these are really talented hitters who were good all the way up through the minors. They'll make the adjustment. It's part of why with Jared Kalanick, who's now back in the minors, why I'm saying patience. He'll make the adjustment at some point. I don't know when it's going to happen. I, I Did anybody say in late April, Jared's going to figure this whole thing out in the next four weeks. But you figure a super talented guy who's shown a strong approach at the plate will make that adjustment at some point early enough for it to matter for him on the field in his case it seems to have happened in month two i think so much of it for a young player also hinges on having a good enough glove where they can continue playing Hmm. all the time even when things are not going well at the plate. Because i think that works for bobby witt jr too i mean if you play up the middle and your team doesn't really have anyone else they want to play up there you're going to keep playing that's going to help a lot i know witt doesn't always play up the middle but this is a guy that hit all five of his home runs in May, yeah. started to walk a little bit more, wasn't striking out uncontrollably to begin the season, a 24.7% K rate in the first month. That wasn't the kind of thing you'd look at and say, he's overmatched, send him down. It was more just like, okay, let's just be patient. And just like you said with Rodriguez, how quickly he was going to figure it out, I had no idea. I never have any idea how quickly a player is actually going to make adjustments and start to become the player we expect him to be. I think it's one of the hardest things about analyzing players. But we're already seeing it. We're seeing a guy take that first big step. And I'd be stunned if, if, if we're talking about Wit two months from now and things have turned back the other way and he looks more like he did in April again. That'd be a pretty surprising outcome for me. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, the, these guys, J-Rod's going to hit a rough patch at some point, just because statistically, not because I think there's anything wrong with him at all. 
just saying, statistically speaking, at some point, he'll slow down. He'll have three weeks where he'll be like, oh, what's wrong with J-Rod? What's wrong with Bobby Witt? Um, you know, especially, God forbid, if it happens at the beginning of next season, we love to overreact. As with Quan, we love to overreact to what happens at the very beginning of the season. Um, I am not worried about, again, I'm not worried about either of these guys, right? I think that they're um, both going to be uh, both going to be fine in the long term. Just don't get too caught up in this, you know, very thin slicing, right? Guy has somebody left him, uh, sent me a message about a particular prospect who had like three straight games where he'd gone to over, and it's good. And it was like, what happened to so and so? Did he forget how to hit? Like <laughs> that happens, right? This is just normal, normal part of the, you know, what is this circle of baseball life or something? It just is. Yeah, granular variance, maybe I'd call it. I don't just yeah, that's not bad. It's just how it works. It's just that's the game. It is just how it works. It's right? it's like the hitters get seven hundred hands of blackjack. And they're not going to win every hand. You, nope. you know how blackjack works. Hitting is kind of like that. I I haven't used this phrase in a while, but people would sometimes get upset. I would say something is just normal random variation. Random does not mean uniform, right? Does not mean that every single Every week, every month, every season of a player's career is exactly the same. There will be ups and downs. That's normal. That is absolutely typical. That would be typical. That would be kind of normal even in a sport where there wasn't somebody else constantly trying to get you out. But here, even more so, you just have a bucket of opponents somewhere that is particularly, say, kind of unfavorable for you. That you know you play a few too many games in hitters' parks or pitchers' parks or something like. Or you just, you know, you get sick a little bit. It takes a little bit out of you and it takes you a while to return. You never even go on the injured list. We don't hear about it. We just tend to treat these guys too much as robots, especially when they're performing, usually when they're performing worse than expected, but occasionally when they're performing better than expected. And hey, sometimes this is a, a sign of a real change. Usually it's just kind of a norm, the normal ups and downs of a season, a month, a season or a, or a career. I'm a big fan of the rolling charts that you can generate over at Fangraphs just to get a sense for like what's normal within a player's, especially for multi-year players. Harder to look at this with rookies, of course, but if you see a veteran struggling two months into the season, have we seen a performance window like this over 40 or so games in the past? Oh, yes, we have seen valleys like this before. This actually might be more normal. You start looking at other stats, process stats. You can sort of put the pieces together and understand that this is not a player being completely broken. This is just things not going well for a prolonged stretch. Sure. Let's talk about Jeremy Pena for a moment because he's starting to open up a pretty big lead on the war leaderboard among rookies, uh, among position players. He's got about a full win advantage over the likes of Rodriguez and Witt for now. And he's actually a top 10 player based on Fangraph's war so far as well. I mean, there's power, there's speed. He's getting on base at a good clip. He's doing everything so far. Uh, why is it going so well for Jeremy Pena? Uh, you know, he really... What we saw from him last year after he came back from injury was really impressive. It was a tiny sample, and he still probably needed to get stronger. And to his great credit, he did. He got a lot stronger. He showed up to spring training this year, and he looked kind of like a different guy physically. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate into on-field performance, but in his case, it did, which is fantastic. I really think that's it. I think that the skills were there. He's. You talk to Astros people. He's done a lot of work even since he got out of college, because I, I may have said this on this podcast before, where his rep coming out of the University of Maine was um, 
you know, really good defender, maybe never going to hit. And he's just not that in it, right? Just throw it out. He's just a completely different player at this point. He has reworked a lot of things, not least of which is his swing is a lot better. And now his body is a lot better. He looked like he was a little, you know, one of those sort of slight infield, you know, good defensive infielder types. You could probably have a picture in your mind of what that player typically looks like. That's what he was coming out of college. He is obviously nothing like that now. Let's give Kiebert Ruiz some love. He's actually playing pretty well right now for the Nationals. A pretty prolonged stretch of playing time for him to begin the season. Just above a, a league average mark in terms of WRC+. Plus. It's a 283 average, a 343 OBP. Only a 386 slug. I think some of the places he was hitting home runs in the upper levels, the minor leagues, did bring legitimate questions about his game power. Um, my pushback on that compared to like Stephen Kwan would just be that I think Ruiz hits the ball a little bit harder. Even though these are mm-hmm. similar players in terms of having really low strikeout rates and, and pretty good eyes in general, I think there's reason to believe, and the hard hit rate probably reflects it to this point, that Kiebert Ruiz might actually be a more likely 12 to 15 home run player in time. Quan, as you said before, 10 probably is where he tops out. I wouldn't be surprised if Ruiz has a better power ceiling that he can get to in the relatively near future. Yes, I agree with all of that. I think his swing is a little bit better geared towards towards power in the long term. I think he hits the ball a little bit harder. I think there's a little bit more strength to come there. Not a ton. Yeah, I I like Kiebert Ruiz. I think a, really what his long-term future is is going to come down way more to defense. What does he look like behind the plate over the long term? And I'm a fan. I do. I think he's going to be a good regular for a while. People were asking me, and I did a mock draft last week where I had the, I guess we talked about that, where I had the Nationals taking Kevin Parada catcher. And they were like, well, does this mean you don't like Kiebert Ruiz? Are they moving Parada to first? You don't draft for need in baseball. I mean, you could do that. It's a, it's a really short life. I don't recommend it, certainly. Um, but you can, um, you do not avoid, you know, if Parada, if the Nationals believe, this is what I'm trying to say, if the Nationals believe that Parada is actually the best player available at that pick, they should just take him. Right. Um, and that is quite possible that he would be the best player available at the pick. I actually think he might be more in consideration to go first overall, except that um, the Orioles, for whatever reason, don't seem to be terribly inclined to take him. We don't have a ton. We never have a ton of information on what the Orioles are going to be doing in the draft. But in this case, I feel reasonably confident that he's not on their list. But I think he's actually got a decent case. And it, it may be that maybe they are saying, hey, we just called up Adley Rutschman. Let's like, you know what? Let's just go in another direction for our overall draft strategy. But I don't think that that alone would be a reason for them not to take him if they really believed he was the best player. We talked a bit about the draft on this show last week. If you want to hear more about the draft, Jonathan Mayo was Keith's guest on the Keith Law Show this week. So be sure to listen to that episode wherever you listen to this podcast. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network. You're there to look for jobs. You're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. 
Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Let's dig into the piece that you had go up earlier this week, redrafting the 2012 MLB draft, the story that made everyone upset the fake draft redrafting from 10 years ago which isn't even possible and ultimately doesn't change anything about your favorite team or my favorite team or his or her or their favorite team but still got people really angry which i feel like might be your gift your true gift in life might be just inciting people with words about baseball you're not wrong it's a blessing and a curse really is seems like it really is so obviously this draft class if you if you remember anything from it uh, carlos correa byron buxton went one two in that draft and spoiler if you haven't read the redraft yet keith had them go one two in the redraft as well Uh, so what separates correa from buxton if you're trying to project forward like if you're trying to get the rest of their respective careers from today on the biggest thing there is actually just he's got a huge lead already in war Correa has more war. I'm using baseball references. Honestly, this was more for ease than any like philosophical preference. But Correa has a lead over everyone else in the class by more than 50% in his war total. He's at about 34. I don't think anybody else in the class was over about 22. I think Corey Seager was second. Byron Buxton was third. I did flip the two of them um, in my ultimate rankings because... I think that Buxton has a better, much better long-term future. Um, I think Buxton has a better chance based on not just recent production, but based on his actual tools, the defensive value he provides up the middle. He's got a much better chance, probably better chance than even Correa of producing a nine or 10 war season at some point. But Correa is just so far ahead and still in his peak. And by the way, I think the youngest or second youngest player on that list, he was extremely, he was a 17-year-old draftee that year. And so he is, of course... As it turns out, they all age at roughly the same rate, and therefore, he is still one of the youngest players in the draft class. So he has, in his case, it's like having a whole extra year of peak ahead of him that everybody else on the list has already passed. Yeah, what's interesting, if you look at their careers so far, Corey Seager went third in the redraft, by the way. If you thought, oh, these guys have all missed significant amounts of time like Corey Seager had the hip surgery a few years ago right that cost him some time and Correa's had a variety of different injuries during his time in Houston mm-hmm. there's still a pretty big gap in terms of overall playing time to this point in their respective careers Carlos Correa leads the trio in plate appearances 3300 mm-hmm. so far Byron Buxton at 1886 there's yeah. that much of a difference in time on the field like the per plate appearance war if you were to equalize playing time you went back in time and you can only fix one thing, and it had to be a baseball thing, and it had to be with the Twins, and it was to somehow put Byron Buxton into a bubble and protect him for his entire career. If you normalize that playing time, they might be even. Buxton might even have the lead. He's been that yes. good on a per-plate appearance basis. Yes. Well, this was the other thing. He is another reason why I put him ahead of... Uh, Buxton ahead of Seager in the redraft also is that Buxton on a sort of per 
whatever you want to do, per 100 games, per 162 games, whatever it is, he's actually been more valuable than Seager. And I think he's going to be more valuable going forward on top of that. But I think in the case of Correa versus Buxton, Correa, the war that's in the books, that huge advantage, that huge lead, it's, it's already there, right? We're not getting, nobody's taking that back, so to speak. And then also there is the, um, uh, there is the consideration of, you know, Correa still has a lot of production ahead of him going forward, even if he doesn't stay at shortstop for the rest of his career, so that he moves to third base at some point, expect him to go there and be really good in that position as well. Yeah, I mean, there's still, I think, a really nice floor for a player like Seager, even eventually moving off shortstop. I think the his approach should age reasonably well. It could be a good accumulator in the back half of his career who ends up yeah. I don't know, racking up another 12 to 15 war over the life of that contract. Obviously, if you're a Rangers fan, you're hoping for more, but it's that stability, that floor that makes you willing to commit to a player like that uh, in the long run. You got Matt Olson going fourth overall here. I wonder if that got people fired up a little bit. You know, nobody mentioned it. It's funny. I was way too low on Olson at the time, like slow footed high school first baseman. What? (laughs) Like, honestly, you you know, not so much picking on Olson specifically as saying like, Hey, that's kind of a tough profile, right? We don't, those guys generally, we don't draft a lot of them high. We don't love them as a group because the failure rate is fairly high. If this guy doesn't hit and get into some power, you have nothing. And when I saw Olsen in high school too, I was like, he's not even very good at first and he doesn't have great bat speed. He was just kind of, you know, he obviously he was very patient the moment he got into pro ball. That is a really hard thing to see in high school players because they're just not they don't see a lot of good pitching, right? It's so rare that, especially in a spring, that you go see a high school player and can really evaluate his plate discipline. Jason Hayward is a guy I can think of where it was pretty evident. But you know what? I went and saw Josh Bell in high school, and I thought he had really good plate discipline for a high school kid, and it didn't really carry over. He had good plate discipline against high school pitching. Not the same thing. So Olsen, to me, is I think it's really interesting. I think the A's did a good did a really good job on that one. And also, they were really patient with him in the big leagues, too. They were patient with him all the way up. He had one breakout year in the minors. And then the year after that was like, nope, he's not very good. And they were, you know, the A's being the A's, and they had the opportunity, the flexibility to stay with that guy, to stay with him, let him continue to play, let him continue to develop. You know, sometimes the, I'm not taking anything away from the A's success, but sometimes there's a big advantage to just having the time to just being able to let Assist, let the guys play out. Let them um, let the, let them develop at their own pace because you're not trying to win immediately. You're not in some desperate situation where you've got to try to get um, you've got to try to win immediately, and you're constantly trading guys. Or oh, this guy isn't good right away. Well, he's done. We got to move him along. I'm curious to see how this trade plays out over time. I mean, the the early glance, you kind of shrug and say, ah, I just don't know if if it. If Oakland got enough in the Matt Olson trade, the timing I think was right relative to the season he was coming off of in 2021, the type of player he is, how that profile typically ages. I think actually placing him in this exercise is as difficult right now as it could have been at any point in the last three years, really, for mm. Matt Olson. I think it it like opens you up to the possibility of being more wrong because he was so good a season ago and the step forward with the strikeout rate especially a 16.8 percent strikeout rate last year during his final mm-hmm. season with the a's i wonder if a year or two from now we look back at that and go how the hell did he do that he hasn't been close to it in 
the last couple of years since, even if he's still a very good, productive player. I'm not saying he's going to fall off a cliff and, and Braves fans are going to be upset. I, they're upset all the time anyway, even though they just won mm. the World Series. But I, I don't know. I, I just think this is one where you, you might look back at Olsen and go, yeah, I could have had him fourth, could have had him seventh. I guess I wish I would have had him seventh instead. It, all the time. I did. I had Andrelton Simmons won in his 2010 redraft ahead of some really, really good players. But Andrelton Simmons was at his peak. And then two months later, he hurt his ankle and then he hurt his shoulder. He might be done. Yeah. Right. If I redid that one right now, he might be like 10th based on what he's already banked, but he could be completely finished. It is. It's a timing thing. If I'd done that four months later, I might've done something different in that situation. So, you know, somebody was trying to troll me about that. It's like, Hey, it's the time, you know, you don't get to look at a piece two months late, two years later when things, (laughs) substantial things have changed in the interim and be like, you were wrong. Ah," Which is basically the tone that I hear these things in, in my head when I read this stuff. So I, you know, there's being wrong and there's the world changing on you that makes that makes it wrong in hindsight. I'm not saying that it that it is correct in hindsight, but yeah, this can happen, right? Byron Buxton for all the injury he's injuries he has, <clears throat> if he continues to have injuries at this rate, he doesn't belong second. Or if he has if he has two healthy years the rest of this season and next season and puts up like 18 war, you know, maybe we're saying, "Oh, maybe he should have gone first overall in the redraft." I think that's probably not going to happen. But, you know, these things are – I'm not going to pretend I'm any good at predicting stuff like that, particularly health. Five straight pitchers coming off the board, right. five through nine. Freed, Giolito, Stroman, Gossman, and Barrios. And that's another cluster of five that I think is reasonably difficult to rank in precise order, especially. I think general order, I'm with you on both Freed and Giolito kind of being a, a notch above the rest of the group. I'm mm-hmm. curious what led you to Freed over Giolito specifically. And yes, for people who don't know, they were teammates in high school. Imagine facing those guys in conference. I bet that was a lot of fun. And the third baseman and third pitcher was Jack Flaherty. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, Harvard Westlake is like a college high school, right? Super expensive, fancy place. Yeah, big, it's pretty big time. Um Slight edge to Freed, and I will say this too, like, you want to flip Freed and Giolito, you want to flip Stroman and Gossman, I got no argument at all. Like, to me, those were coin flips, and I went almost on gut as much as anything else. Um, Freed, slight edge for being left-handed, I think a little bit healthier, you know, relative, each guy's had Tommy John surgery, both did it when they were in the minors. Yeah, very, very slight edge. In that case, and uh, you know, Stroman over Gossman too. You want to put Gossman over Stroman? Sure, Gossman's uh, helped helps Gossman. He's just probably going to be in a, in a he's um, he's going to be uh, playing in front of better defenses for a while. I think that's probably just going to help his numbers and help his longevity. I really like both those guys. I think Stroman's athleticism and conditioning is going to allow him to pitch for a longer period of time. But if you want to argue they should be in the other way, I am not pushing back. Like there were a lot of coin flip things on this list. And those are two of them where I don't have a particularly strong feeling either way. I think Gossman throwing more sliders this year is one of those micro level changes that would, if it holds, change a lot about how I feel about him long term. You know, I, I thought back mm-hmm. in the offseason, I thought there was a little bit of risk because he can be so so dependent on on two pitches with the fastball yeah. splitter. And, and I just thought, okay, at this point in his career, is he really going to change to the point where a third pitch is going to work consistently? And the answer is, yeah, maybe. And if that is the case, I'm fully there as far as being able to bump him up 
a couple of spots on this list. You had Joey Gallo rounding out the top 10, and man, Joey Gallo should be a really fun player. I feel like we've gone through this stretch. Most of the time he's been with the Yankees even, where it just it hasn't been the same as it was for him in Texas. Mm-hmm. What kind of turnaround could we see from Joey Gallo if we get one at all? Like what gives you some hope that this isn't just the end for him? I feel like Joey Gallo is going to be the same player until he's done, right? No, I don't, I don't think there's a change. I think he gets back to the player he was a year or two ago, and that's it. I, he's basically made it clear he has no intention of making any significant adjustments. I am what I am. It's the Popeye <laughs> approach to baseball development, right? That's just, I don't really know what else there is to do, uh, to, to what else there is to say about a player who's pretty valuable when he's going good. But has just pretty much said, no, this is what I do. Joe, are you going to consider trying to hit the ball the other way a little bit to defeat the shift? Nah. Yeah, maybe maybe the rules will change. There's a little part of me that respects that. All right. You know what you can do. (laughs) On the other hand, like he's a pretty good athlete. Joey Gallo could probably make some small adjustments if he wanted to. He's choosing not to. Which is, you know, I don't really love as a, you know, baseball adjacent person. But I also don't think he's done, right? I think he's too young. To just say, nah, that's it. He is not going to be productive again. He will be productive. Maybe he'll be productive somewhere else. Certainly seen a lot of people go to New York, and for whatever reason, it doesn't work there. Hey, swinging at a lot of pitches outside the zone, which is not always something that you see from him. I think if he can change that part of his approach, he'll do more damage. It's going to be with the usual heavy, heavy share of strikeouts. One of the things with him in high school that was concerning was, wasn't that he chased. It's that he'd swing and miss in the zone. And then he'd hit the next one 520 feet. So, really. Okay, not many players can do that, especially not with a wood bat. He would do it with a wood bat. So, you know, that was the that he wasn't a first rounder out of high school. You would think a guy with just unbelievable power, um, who was also athletic and had a huge arm. He was up to ninety five off the mound. Why wouldn't that guy be a first rounder? Well, because I was there. I tell the story in the article, but I was there the day he set the Nevada State career home run record for a high school player, and in the same game, he punched out a pretty sure on three pitches and swung right through two of them in the zone. He's like, the hell do I do with this guy? <laughs> Eventually, I just ranked, I wrote him up as a ranked him, wrote him up and ranked him as a first rounder. I was like, that's too exceptional. And I was too light on Stanton as an amateur player for that very reason. I was like, yeah, the power is unbelievable. But he's going to strike out too much. Well, yeah, but the power was unbelievable and the power ended up the thing that mattered. I was like, well, I'm not making the same mistake again. Yeah, finding that sweet spot when there's a lot of swing and miss, but just an enormous amount of of power like that. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really challenging thing to sort out, especially when you're talking about guys that are 17, 18 years old, because you can Mm -hmm. remove some of that swing and miss in certain instances. Uh, The last player I want to talk about is the guy you had going 17th in the redraft for 2012, Josh Hader. And I think it's just a fascinating question of how early would a team take a guy who's been a unicorn as a reliever. He's the only pitcher in baseball history to get to 500 strikeouts before reaching 300 innings pitched. No one's ever done that before, which is pretty remarkable. And the Brewers have also started using him a bit differently these last few years. There was only one appearance in 2020 where he recorded more than three outs. And he didn't do it at all in 2021, hasn't done it all in 2022. He is used like a traditional closer through and through. That is what they do with him now. There's no more multi-inning Josh Hader. I think if we get to a point 
where the Brewers are in a playoff game, maybe they change the rules. Maybe that's different. Maybe there's a situation where he comes in, finishes the eighth, pitches the ninth. That could happen then. I think those days are pretty much over as far as the regular season goes otherwise. Otherwise, The big question I have with Hayter, though, is how do you expect him to age? Because relievers usually, they're dominant for a little while, and then velo dips, command dips, and their margin for error tends to be really small. But seeing that he's a historically great reliever to this point in his career makes me wonder if things could be a little bit different. I think he's going to age poorly, and that's not. It's about ninety percent because of what he is—a reliever, particularly a one-inning reliever. The history of those guys is very poor, and because it's not a great delivery or arm action. I don't really care about that stuff in relievers. I care about starters, right? To me, that just speaks to durability and a little bit to command. But in relievers, where the goal is just throw really hard and throw hard. Right? That's basically, we don't ask a lot of relievers. You don't have to throw, I mean, some strikes. You don't have to throw a ton of strikes. You throw really hard and you got one good secondary pitch, you can be a reliever in the big leagues. And I make that sound easier than it is. But, you know, in Hader's case, it was a bad delivery. I always said, I, I don't see any way this guy can start. He's got an unbelievable arm. He was the rare guy I said, it, I called a future reliever and still put on my top 100. I've probably only done that with like five or six guys ever, and certainly in the last 10 years. Um, I think when Hader goes, it's just going to go. It'll just someday the arm will just be done. But in the meantime, I could see him being elite for a little while longer before he gets to that point. And if I were the Brewers or whatever team is employing him in the future and he's still going, I would just I wouldn't even think about tomorrow. Just Josh, you in? Great. We're just going to we're going to have you pitch as much as you feel like you can handle because you just I don't think there is any predicting at this point. I'm not saying I'd use him five days in a row. I'm not saying I'd even use him three days in a row. I'm saying just do not pitch with this. Do not use this guy with the expectation that he's still going to be this three or four years down the road. And that's also saying when he hits free agency, someone's going to give him a contract. If he's still healthy all the way up to free agency, um, which you were talking about before we started recording, I'm not giving this guy a four-year deal. I'd never give a reliever a four-year deal. They all break down. Just about all four-year deals deals for relievers other than Mariano Rivera's. And I think there maybe is one other one. They've pretty much all worked out poorly. I think he'll probably break the record for a reliever if he's healthy going into free agency, though, just based on this track record. I think the interesting thing this year, his velo is up. He's had a career high on the fastball velocity. It's amazing, right? 96.9. I, I would just expect the trend to be thing. going the other way, given the cumulative usage here. But maybe, maybe dialing back on it a little bit has helped keep him healthy to this point. Maybe. It's just, maybe. A, just a thought that maybe if they'd kept pushing him four, five, six outs at a time, they would have been keeping him at an elevated injury risk with those, those higher pitch counts on a regular mm-hmm. basis. But check this out, this 2012 uh, redraft that Keith did earlier this week. has got the big misses written up as well. That's always a fun trip down memory lane. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get one for just a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash baseball show. On Twitter, you can find Keith at Keith Law. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Have a safe and happy holiday weekend. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Tuesday. 